Welcome back. We are here to talk about Game of Thrones. I am Monty Ashley. And I'm Brian Hamilton. Uh, hey, how's it going? So glad to be back on uh, The Incomparable, talking Game of Thrones. Good to have you back, Brian. <laughs> uh, this was the fifth season, second episode, The House of Black and White. For the show title... Did you like it? Uh, I liked it, but for the show title, they spent an awful uh, little time at the actual House of Black and White. I'm not sure that's either a house, nor do I think it was particularly black and white. It was really more of a kind of cream color. <laughs> well, the door is really the only thing that was black or white, but uh, you never know. We don't really know much about this place. Uh, hopefully next week we'll uh, get a bit more info. Yeah, my thought, if I were in a D&D g- game and I was faced with what Arya had, where she knocked on the door and somebody came out and wouldn't let her in, I think she locked on the black side of the door. If she knocked on the white side of the door, maybe that's the friendly side that people let will let you in, and then you're in a whole... Uh, black-white duality world where there's always two people, one who tells the truth and one who lies. That makes a lot of sense, especially given uh, uh, Jacken's weird duality nature. He was uh, he was black and white this episode, too. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so jumping straight to Jacken, Jacken's back, or is he? Mm, I certainly hope he is. He was my favorite part of uh, the season two arc, and uh, thank God he's back. Well, he did say a man is not Jack and Hagar, which could mean two things. Could mean that's not his name, which it certainly isn't. But also, is there any reason to think that this is the same guy? Because if these guys can change their faces, it seems like this might be a totally different character. It's very- Having said that, go ahead. Uh, no, that's very true. I mean, the fact that you know he's back in shape only. Uh, we don't really know much about the, I was going to say science behind it, but you know the magic behind this. This might be one entity that uh, like is embodied uh, somehow in this house. I, I have no idea. <laughs> of course, having said that, I don't think it matters as long as he looks like the jacket we enjoyed and acts like the jacket he, I enjoyed. Hey, great. More jacket. <laughs> but before that, I mean, the episode starts with... Um, Arya finally coming into uh, into the city, and I noticed uh, the music that played as she was uh, sailing into uh, into the city. It sounds like uh, music that would play in a 1950s movie as people were entering Egypt. That same kind of big, swelling, uh, very, very uh, grander uh, kind of music that you know you see in older movies like that. And. That played right as we saw the uh, giant statue with his feet bestriding the inlet. It's probably... All right, it's obviously a reference to the Colossus of Rhodes, Mm. but I choose to believe it's also a nod to Ray Harryhausen. (laughs) That would be fantastic. I I like to think it's uh, Lord of the Rings. It could be. But I will point out, Ray Harryhausen movies had exactly the music you're talking about. Oh, that's very true. And Lord of the Rings did not. Oh, Lord of the Rings had much more sweeping and epic music. Mm. Uh, So she's sailing through the city, and I love that montage where we get to see all of the little aspects of life. It's almost like uh, it reminds me of the opening scene of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean as as Johnny Depp is sailing through that city. We see all these little things as he's doing it, and I really loved all the uh, cool little interesting stuff we get to see as she's sailing through. Yes, I hope we actually get to see some of that in the course of the show. I'm a little worried she's just going to be locked inside a giant marble cube. 
uh, learning whatever it is Jake and Hagar is going to teach her. There's that. There's also, you know, she would be another character inside a box for a long, long period of time, as we saw with Tyrion last week. But, you know, I was concerned when we saw, you know, this big house of black and white that's very mysterious and uh, we don't know much about it. That reminded me a lot of my least favorite episode of uh, season, I guess it was two or three, when uh, Daenerys goes into the House of the Undying. That just bothered me, and I hope we don't get more of that. I like that in principle, again, because I think of this game, this uh, show as a big D&D game. <laughs> and I'm always up for a big, you know, you're in the puzzle room, figure it out. It's like watching I, a uh, movie adaptation of a video game where it's more fun to actually play it than watch someone figure out these puzzles on their own. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. So I have a theory on uh, what the theme of this show is turning into now that we're in season five. Mm-hmm. But I will come back to it after we've uh, whipped through the other plots of this uh, episode. Yes, yes. Uh, so, Arya is very small in this episode, which made me sad. Yeah. Like, I was excited to see her. In theory, the Starks, I still think of the Starks as the stars of the show, even though there's very few of them left alive. And those that are alive aren't really the stars of their own storylines, like Sansa. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Sansa, <laughs> great, great segue. Uh, Podrick and Brienne take some time off from wandering in a field to go to a pub, and they actually spot Sansa and Littlefinger, and the stories cross over and connect. I was very excited by that. Every time that happens, it takes me way too long to like process in my mind, wait, what's going to happen when these characters uh, you know, finally intersect and their plot lines intersect? It really makes me think, like what's going to happen? Because I have to think all the way back to, you know, early last season when, does everyone know what's up to speed in, you know, King's Landing or these other parts of Westeros? Like, do they understand that Sansa's on the run, that they have to be very secretive about her? Or uh, does Littlefinger understand what's happening with uh, Brienne, why she's there? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows anything. (laughs) Like, if Sansa is supposed to be undercover right now, she's supposed to be pretending to be somebody else at least that's what was the situation at the eerie but now people can just wander up to her and say hi sansa stark (laughs) and littlefinger is happy just to introduce her as his niece so when they said you know the the whole niece thing when he was playing that back up i was wondering what uh his reaction would be to this whole scenario and as brienne came up and said uh, Sansa Stark, I'm here to, uh, you know, avenge your mother and carry out her last wishes. Like, I, I was wondering what his reaction would be and what the consequences would be for everyone in the pub to know that that was Sansa Stark. And as it turns out, it did not go that well. No. The thing Littlefinger most seemed interested in was learning that Renly had been killed by a shadow with the face of Stannis Baratheon, <laughs> which is a nice way to put it. I usually just Think of it as Stannis being killed by a smoke monster. Yeah, it's another lost crossover. Yeah. But I thought that Littlefinger made a little fumble there, because normally he's very good with his words and the verbal sparring. But he did the usual dig at Brienne that everybody does now, where everybody she serves and swears to protect dies. <laughs> and then he said, basically, I'm protecting Sansa. I'm her uncle. Because I married her mother, who died right after it 
I have lots of notes about this later, but this entire show, this episode, I feel like really uh, emphasizes this. This entire show is all about words and oaths and word of mouth. Information doesn't really get around very well, and it's all very, very subjective. Um, this definitely reinforced that and that, you know, she has her vows that is number one on her list of priorities. And Littlefinger has something completely different. And he may not believe that these oaths are worth what she's, you know, pursuing. Like, they may not be worth her time or her energy or Sansa's time or energy. So that is, I feel like, the biggest clash of this. And, you know, they were fighting over Sansa. Like, she, I feel like, has the least agency of any of the Stark kids at this point just because of her service surroundings and everything that's going on (laughs) ah look who forgot rickon even exists who (laughs) rickon you know (laughs) smaller version of bran could walk around wandered off with uh helena bottom carter or something oh yeah that's right she's uh they're out there doing something but mm, who knows (laughs) um i think it's interesting you bring up oaths because in a way brienne and littlefinger are on two opposite ends of the spectrum when with regard to how much they care about honor. Brienne is completely driven by honor and oaths, and all she really wants, in my opinion, is to serve somebody and just be a knight and get to make oaths and vows and follow through. Whereas Littlefinger could not care less about any of that. He's always been on the uh, like opposite side of that. Uh, when he was in King's Landing, he was always in the underbelly trying to do all of these really weird, you know, slimy things, manipulating everything. And that's the same thing here. Uh, he completely undercuts her oaths and just wants to get the heck out of there with Sansa in tow. You're right. Yeah. And then... Eventually, uh, as anybody could have predicted, things don't go well, and Brienne has to fight her way out, and there is a horse chase. I love, love, love that horse chase. It reminds me of the scene in The Dark Knight where uh, they're driving through Chicago going all absolutely insane, and this is definitely one of those like big flashy moments where HBO gets to show off the budget the show has, and uh, they're able to do a whole bunch of really cool stuff and make things really, really fast-paced. This felt like something out of a movie. Yeah, I I actually watched a movie just last night called the Witchfinder general mm. it's a roger corman movie from 1968 and this was a much better horse chase really because well on a complete tangent in the Witchfinder general in 1968 if anyone out there watches that that movie does not have as many horses as it's pretending and there is an extended scene where one character is chasing another character you never see them on screen at the same time because they're on the same <laughs> horse <laughs> just keep cutting back and forth and at first i thought those are the same horse. Then I realized it's probably also the same stunt rider. <laughs> they probably just had him ride through the shot and then change outfits and ride through the shot again. Well, HBO's got way more of a budget than that, thank God, especially as we'll see later. Uh, amazing, amazing dragon effects. Uh, that's always yeah. something that blows my mind when we get to see the budget that Game of Thrones allot this. And we're paying 15 bucks a month to watch uh, HBO, so <laughs> hopefully that goes to the right places. Yes. So I think that's about all there is on Pod and Brienne. Like, it's nice that she knows Sansa exists now, and now she's going to insist on following Littlefinger and Sansa, I guess? I don't know. The scene follows them out, and we don't see uh, Sansa and Littlefinger until the last thing we see of them is in the bar as they're uh, fighting and uh, doing all of that. Going back just a second, uh, I felt like this scene in the pub is a callback to probably my favorite scene in the show in season one with uh, Catelyn Stark and Tyrion in that pub. Hmm. Uh, definitely. Do you think it's the same pub? I, mm, that's very possible. They're uh, they're up north, right? Uh, somewhere close to the Vale. Where are they? Pa- 
I have no idea. I know that <laughs> I couldn't even mean to guess. I know one I know that Littlefinger and Sansa are going from the Vale to Winterfell. And Brienne was last seen in King's Landing and we don't really know where she and Pod have been going. They've just been aimlessly wandering and bickering. It's almost like The Walking Dead. I had a theory earlier that this show is House of Cards, Walking Dead, and um, True Detective all rolled into one because you get elements of all of that. But yeah, they're just uh, wandering around doing their thing. And, you know, we got a little glimpse of this last week when we see that they're they're, uh, riding in the carriage right next to uh, Brienne and Pod. And that's something I really appreciate about the show is it's making an effort to show us that all these people are kind of in the same world, mm-hmm. at least as much as they can. Admittedly, Daenerys and Arya, at this point, kind of aren't in the same world as everyone else. Yeah, that's true. I but, mean, the way that um, you're right, the reason that they tease these little things is because the payoff is so great. When we hear, when we heard last week that um, that Tyrion's going to go visit Daenerys, I, I got... Like I was so excited to see those two plot lines cross, and they just mentioned, yeah, we're going to go over to Marine. Like, oh wow, okay, that was my favorite scene last week. Uh, so it's really great to see them, you know, at least attempt to come together. And then the payoff is always great. I hope we get to the payoff because mm. in this episode they are not in Marine; they are in a carriage on their way to Volantis. <laughs> Another little box that Tyrion gets to spend lots of time in. Yeah. Well, that's an, it was a nice box, though. Much nicer than the one with uh, poop holes in the sides. Yeah, if Varys has to be in the box himself, he's going to get a nice one with some cushions and stuff. Uh, uh, what do you say we jump over to that scene really quickly? The sure. way that, um, Love it. Uh, so, last week, my favorite scene in the episode was Tyrion uh, talking and them discussing what they're going to do later. You know, the future is crap. The past is crap. You know, all of that stuff talking about uh, the ramifications of everything that they've done. These two characters are so far removed, uh, geographically at least, from the rest of the action in Westeros, and they still have such a big impact just in their scheming and their little brains. I loved that. And in this one, I loved, um, my favorite line was, people like you and me are never satisfied inside the box. Like, things are going to get ugly, and they're willing to do it uh, for, you know, the sake of their power and their the legacy of the country. I hope so. I gotta say... I really like Tyrion. I like Varys. I like hearing them talk, but I'm already very impatient with their storyline. Like, here's the complete notes I took on their scene. Tyrion drinks his way to Volantis, musing about life inside boxes. <laughs> I, everything else, it felt to me like they hadn't advanced anywhere past the previous episode. Tyrion is still cranky, doesn't want to do anything, just wants to drink and check out of the whole plot. Varys still is apparently an idealist. Uh, that surprised me last week. I knew he was always, you know, someone that was subverting power for, in my opinion, all the right reasons. But I never expected him to be such a patriot to want to like go to all these lengths just to bring Daenerys back and have uh, all of that, you know, come back to Westeros for the sake of the uh, Iron Throne. Sure. I mean, it it was very direct of him to be announcing his intentions like that, which makes me think maybe he's not saying everything that he actually thinks. But it takes me back to the first season where when Ned first got to King's Landing, there were all these people with their own agendas. And really, Varys and Littlefinger were pretty much indistinguishable. (laughs) They were both just schemers up to something. 
And at this point, it certainly looks like Varys is the schemer on the side of good, and Littlefinger is the schemer on the side of evil. Uh, season one is the season I've watched the most because I always introduce my friends to it. So uh, what sticks out in my mind is there one scene towards the end of the season when uh, Joffrey is ascending to the throne. They're standing in the throne room and they mm-hmm. scheme a little bit. It's wonderful. And you're right. They're both the schemers of the show. And, uh, you know, because they're so separated from each other, we get to see much more the um, the difference between them. You're right. You know, we have uh, Varys who's there for good with Tyrion who's also there for good and then Littlefinger is with Sansa being very manipulative of her and everything around him could this perhaps represent the show turning into more of a House of Black and White? Ooh. ooh. <laughs> uh, probably not, but I give it a shot. When I saw the title, uh, I was really looking forward to all the multiple meanings of it. And yeah, we get a House of Black and White, or at least a Black and White door, but we don't really get like uh, anything that, um, not like last week's episode where they say the war is to come multiple times, and it sets up everything to come, even if they don't actually explicitly say the war is to come. Uh, I didn't really find any like duality or anything in there. I was looking for it with Daenerys, uh, who we'll get to later, but I uh, didn't really see too much of it. I thought that uh, there would be more uh, distinction or starkness, if you will, <laughs> between um, uh, uh, two different sides. Yeah, I I was really looking forward to coming up with a lot of potential interpretations of the House of Black and White, and really all we have is this one place called the House of Black and White. And we don't even get much of that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you want to jump over to King's Landing for that brief scene with uh, Cersei and Jamie? Sure. Uh, obviously, my favorite part is that Cersei is calling Marjorie that smirking whore from High Garden. <laughs> she is smirking. She smirks so well. I'm such a big Natalie Dormer fan at this point. Oh, she's wonderful. You were talking last week with Jason about how that one smile she has in the scene with her brother conveys so much about <laughs> how she feels about his lover. And uh, rewatching the episode just before this, yes, you're completely right. She has all these wonderful little facial expressions, all these little wonderful things. Here we are talking about her, and she's not actually in this episode. That's how wonderful she is. <laughs> Well, Natalie Dormer's very busy. Mm. She she has Hunger Games to be in. She's in the Hunger Games? Yeah. Mm. She's in uh, Mockingjay Part 1, and she'll be in Mockingjay Part 2. She has the side of her head shaved, and there's a neat tattoo up there. Oh, th- that's really cool. I didn't know that. I haven't seen those. She's also sometimes on Elementary, where she is my favorite thing on that show as well. <laughs> uh, elementary, that's another topic. Uh, so in this King's Landing uh, segment... The way that Cersei talks to Jamie, the flip between last week's uh, Cersei, where she's furious at Jamie for letting Tyrion go out and uh, kill Tywin, I feel like there's a lot less of that. There's definitely some undercurrents of anger and fury towards Jamie in the way that uh, they talk in this episode. Uh, the way that Jamie says, Is that all, uh, my lady? Like, very, very removed hmm. from the fact that they're siblings. Well, I think uh, Cersei is. Ha- is trying to put her personal feelings aside and take care of business. And to her, business is job one, try to get Marcella out of Dorne. Job two, run the country. Mm. Uh, you were talking last week about how who the heck is running King's Landing. We see later yeah. that it's Cersei. And I think that's a good call. I mean, forget the issues of pro- primogeniture or who's supposed to be king. Cersei is ruthless, but I think she might be the best qualified person to actually run Westeros. 
That's fair, but then again, she's going to be manipulating everything for the sake of her family. I have in my notes, Cersei loves family more than she's mad at Jamie. So uh, the way that she talks about how family is everything, we have people in Dorne, we have Tyrion out there somewhere, we have uh, the legacy to hold up, we have all of this stuff, and she still lets Jamie in on it to do stuff for her. Uh, she has these jobs and she has the way that... Uh, you know, she's trying to run the country, but what's infuriating to me is how she's going to be manipulating everyone else. We see on the uh, small council later, she's manipulative. <laughs> well, that was, I feel, not so much manipulative as just a naked power grab. I mean, she comes out and says, the king's too busy, I'm in charge. Quote, unquote, too and busy, there's no way he's doing anything important. <laughs> <laughs> that depends how important you think Marjorie is. Mm. <laughs> And, and I think this would actually be a fair division of labor if Cersei and Marjorie would just get together in a room. Marjorie, you get to be queen. Cersei, you get to rule the country. Everybody happy? Great. Let's get on with our lives. Except that's not going to happen because Cersei's just too angry no. at Marjorie. Yep. I'd, it's certainly not going to happen if these people would just take my advice. I mean, some people <laughs> on the small council are perfectly willing to be bribed. Oh, I'm the master of coin too? Great. You're queen regent or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the only one who doesn't accept it, I believe is, I can't remember his name, but he's a Lannister. Yes, it was, um, it was an uncle of Cersei because he says, I came to King's Landing to mourn my brother. So yeah, that's who it is. Yeah. And he stomps off to Casterly Rock, which I think is fine with Cersei. Like, if you're not here in the small council causing problems, she doesn't care where you are. That makes sense. But the way that she uh, interacts with everybody, I, I, when he called her out in uh, bringing Tommen into the room to lead and do kingly things, I loved, like, I was really looking forward to ac Tommen actually coming in and trying to run the council and failing miserably. That would be neat. I, it would feel a little redundant at this point just because we've seen bad kings already mm. like i'm sure he would be incompetent in a different way from joffrey and in a different way from daenerys who i do not think is great at ruling yet mm, we'll talk about that yeah I, I think tommen's best role right now is just as a puppet to be fought over by characters with uh goals and intention like cersei and marjorie exactly exactly i mean there's there's that one bit in the small council scene where uh she appoints someone i i guess i missed this who was the person that she appointed that uh pissed off the Aunt lannister uncle so much um well lord tyrell offered to be the hand but he was already master of ships and now he's also master of coin mm -hmm. the grand meister volunteered to be the hand, but he was shoved out of the way so the creepy young Meister could get it. Mm, there we go. I don't remember the name of the creepy young Meister, but he was the one that was experimenting with unnatural things. Exactly, exactly. Uh, like earlier, he's the one that took the head, right? The uh, head of the dwarf that uh, was brought I, to Cersei? <laughs> yeah, no sense wasting a good head. <laughs> 
Um, quick aside about that. Uh, that comes right after um, the scene in the box with Tyrion. And I think this is the first time there's ever been a cut like that between scenes. Because things usually get nicely wrapped up in dialogue or in scenes before they go somewhere else. This is the first one that felt like an Arrested Development cutaway. The way that it said, yeah. mm, I hope uh, she doesn't get my head. How many dwarves could she possibly kill? Thunk! And we get a uh, we get a dwarf head. Yeah. I can't remember another cut like that. You might be right. Mm. Uh, it's like last week, I thought uh, that scene with Daenerys in the dragon chamber was the first jump scare Game of Thrones did. <laughs> They're doing some really bizarre cinematic things. At this point, I'm going to bring up my theory on what the show is turning into. All right, do it. Mismatched buddy show. Ooh, how so? Well, take Tyrion and Varys. What you have is you have these two mismatched characters. We're going to shove them together. They're going to bicker. They're going to have fun. They're going to have witty dialogue. That model is what all of the subplots are turning into. You've got Jamie, who's supposed to go off to Dorne, but he's going to go recruit Bronn. Why? Two reasons. One, Bronn was a lot of fun when he was hanging out with Tyrion, but mostly so that Jamie and Bronn can have fun bickering buddy cop banter. Mm-hmm. You've got Brienne and Podrick. Same thing. I, I really think the show is largely just pairing people off and hoping we get hoping we enjoy their banter until it's time for the plot to lurch forward right because that succeeded so well in season i guess it was uh three or four with uh aria and that whole subplot my favorite parts of those seasons were their dialogue and i feel like hbo is responding by giving us even more of those and it's starting to feel like the show maybe is I don't want to say they're like slowing down or running out of ideas, but the fact remains, I feel like they would rely on something else, like the plot or some of the character developments on their own, rather than just pairing people off and giving them a quest to do for the entire season, just for the sake of having something for them to do. Yeah, I mean, I like the show. I enjoy it a lot. I just get a little impatient with things like Daenerys refusing to come over to Westeros. I have a theory about that, too. We can talk about that later or now if you want, but I have uh, some theories about why these uh, subplots are existing at the same time and the reason Daenerys is uh, the way she is right now. Uh, Well, do you have anything else on King's Landing? We talked about the small council and uh, Jaime and Cersei sort of getting along again. I really hope Apple uh, does that really cool snake stand for the Apple Watch edition. Uh, but beyond oh, that, yeah. no, I, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the people in the show send really classy warnings, don't they? Yeah, they do the way that, uh, so what was the significance of that? It's just two pendants. One is Cersei's one is the Lannister child that's in Dorne. Yeah. Marcella. Marcella thank you. So they sent her back Marcella's pendant just to remind her Marcella is here and it was kind of in the hands of the snake. Snakes don't have hands. You know what I mean. That's <laughs> better than severed genitalia from a few seasons ago. But yeah, that's uh, pretty threatening. It's like the uh, Mask of the Harpy guys. They have these really classy masks that they leave behind. Oh, yeah. The uh, Apple Mask Edition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else haven't we hit? We haven't talked about the very brief scene in Dorne uh, where yeah. we uh, get the ruler of Dorne talking about the Lannisters in King's Landing. 
there wasn't much to talk about there just to remind us that Dorne exists and to show off this great location they found. Mm, I love that location so much. <laughs> yeah, like she the lady complained that we that the prince was uh just sitting there looking at his gardens, but I feel like if you have gardens like that, why would you look at anything else? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, it was almost like a little wink wink nudge nudge to the audience. Oh, come on, why would you look at these beautiful gardens? Hey audience, look at these beautiful gardens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's that. My favorite thing about that scene was um, we can't mutilate these uh, children here. Not while I rule. Uh, I feel like, you know, you can't show a gun in the first act without going off in the third act. Something's going to happen with this ruler of Dorne now that he said, not while I rule. You can see there's some yeah. tension between them there talking, but I really think that something big is going to happen in Dorne. I hope we spend more time there. I hope... Um, Oh, come on. I just forgot her name. The Lancer child is there. I hope Marcella. Thank you, Marcella. I hope uh, she has more to do this season because, you know, she was there. She <laughs> was looking more to you mean more than anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe she'll get a line. I hope so. Uh, last time we saw her, she was crying and uh, going away on a boat, which is something they really, really like to show in the uh, previously on Game of Thrones segments at the beginning. <laughs> um, one thing I thought was interesting about the leader of Dorne, whose name I did not catch I just have him down as Oberyn's brother. Mm -hmm. He's refusing to take revenge, which is probably a good idea. You don't, you don't have to send your country to war after every single thing, especially Oberyn dying because Oberyn was gonna die. Like he showed up in Westeros planning on killing the entire Lannister clan, right? Plus the Mountain. But I don't think you can really rule on a show like this if your policy is not to take revenge. That makes sense. The way that everyone's policies versus their, you know, personal, uh, like their own beliefs and the laws that are going on around them and the world around them, they always clash. Uh, going back to last episode of The Wall, um, the king beyond the wall, his, uh, his pride and his own, uh, you know, his pride uh, got in the way of, you know, actually getting anything done and it led to his death. Here, uh, he's not going to be taking revenge because of his own beliefs. Uh, you need to play dirty to play with the Lannisters. Yeah. And I think that brings us to Marine, mm. where uh, they found a son, a mask of the harpy, son of the harpy, whatever those guys were yeah, called. Yeah, something like that. And Daenerys takes the principled stand that we must give this man a free, a fair trial. So the way that, oh God. So my theory about this whole season is that Daenerys' subplot needs Tyrion's subplot to make her whole subplot interesting. As soon as uh, they said they're going to Marine uh, last episode, I was so excited and I paid so much more attention to... Um, to Daenerys this episode because of it. And I really love uh, thinking about what's going to happen when the two of them cross. And I'm starting to look for signs like, what is Daenerys's plan? What is their, uh, what is her um, uh, whole game plan for running Marine? And is it enough to convince her to stay and not go over to Westeros? Well, I think the idea is that she's learning to be a ruler, which is not a bad idea. Most of like, if Joffrey or Tommen had had some of that, they might do better. But there's only so many scenes of somebody listening to each point of view expressed by somebody on their council and then deciding what to do. And 
Yeah, there's that. That seems a little bit boring. I guess it established the fact that uh, she's at contention with everyone around her, which really comes to a head at the end when she starts a riot when she kills the guy. But the <laughs> way- <laughs> without a fair trial, by the oh, way. Oh, exactly. So, okay, the way that. Uh, she is trying to rule here. It's not working very obviously. She wants to rule, but Marine is not the place for her to rule. She shows up and kills a guy for the sake of her own laws and not the laws of them. You know, she shows up and um, liberates everyone and the slaves are very happy. She's seen as uh, someone they can trust, someone they come to, where she plays Apple support for, you know, five episodes straight last season. And (laughs) I... She can't do that. She can't uh, have this trial uh, or attempt to have this trial and then keep going on her law uh, basis for these people that don't understand it. The people in the uh, in the town were fine with uh, uh, with the death of the harpy. But she wasn't. So for her sake and not anybody else's, she kills the person uh, at the end of the episode and she starts a riot. They have a martyr now against her. Yeah, it's not going well. The whole city has erupted in a riot, much like King's Landing erupted in a riot while uh, Joffrey had to be bundled away. Yeah, so if that if I were her, I would uh, bug out. Take your army, go to the next town over, take that one over. Uh, that would be another season of her doing something she's done for literally the past three seasons. Yeah, but at least uh, attacking a city with an army is fun to look at. That's very true. For the the one episode that they are able to do it, then they have to show the fallout for the rest of the season. But every time I look at this and I think, if she's so wrapped up in her own ideals and her own way of ruling a city that she's willing to kill a guy and inside a riot for it, she may be better in Westeros. Uh, how do you think that she's going to feel when Tyrion shows up to say, hey, come to Westeros with us. We need a ruler there. Things are crap. Um, well, what I expect will happen is Tyrion and Varys will show up, say, oh, you're having trouble running this place? Why don't we let advise you? We're experienced advisors. Hmm. And then they'll start advising her. Hopefully they'll be good at it. I assume they're, they'll be good at it, but most much of their advice didn't actually get followed in the show that we've seen because they're you know the outcasts they're the weird ones they're the dwarf and the eunuch well also because they were advising joffrey for some of it (laughs) very true or for for that matter robert who is a crazy person that's very true uh you know he was all about you know doing everything but ruling the kingdom but maybe it's just because i'm i really want to jump the gun and say okay bring daenerys to westeros now you're probably right in that they're going to play that out and have them hang out in Marine a little bit, have uh, them advise her, and then maybe sweet talk her over the course of a season or two into coming back to Westeros. Also, maybe Varys knows something about how to train dragons. Well, they have to watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> what you have to do is fly around and uh, speak in a different accent from your entire family. Very, very true. Uh, I've never Which actually I seen think that she movie. Does. Oh, it's so good. Ooh. I'll give it a shot then. Um, One of the things I really liked about this segment in the show was now that you can see things aren't going well for Daenerys and Marine, I kept an eye out for things that maybe indicate she would be better off in Westeros. And the very last shot when uh, Dragon comes back and she says, oh, yay, finally you're back. 
she doesn't even have control over her dragons anymore. And I can imagine that's creating intense anxiety. You know, from last week, um, the queen of dragons without dragons, that's nothing. Uh, when yeah. she extends her hand and he flies away, maybe that's, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back in bringing her back to Westeros where she will have control. And she has a whole bunch of fans uh, there saying, bring back the Targaryen dynasty. Well, Drogon, which is a really lazy name for a dragon, by the oh way. Oh, my God. Uh, Drogon not listening to her, I think, does provide her some reason to stay. But it should also be, in my opinion, the focus of her behavior. How so? Uh, well, there is an untamed dragon flying around the city oh. that she controls. <laughs> That's true. The uh, The anxiety she got when the... Uh, when the man from the last episode of last season, uh, when he brings the skeleton of his little girl, that really set something off in her. That was something that really you know affected her. Yeah, like it, if this dragon starts misbehaving, I think that's really bad news. But if she can like transition into riding it around and having it burn who she says, then there's probably nothing stopping her from coming over to Westeros and just taking over immediately. That's very true. I can imagine that's going to be maybe the last episode of the entire uh, series when uh, she just goes over, burns everything, and then it's going to be really cool. Burn everything. Soon. (laughs) Very, very soon. Uh, So what else is happening in Marine? We had uh, something that reminded me of Hamlet when uh, he just kind of stabs the wall. Uh, Dead for a ducat? Dead? Yeah. Now, did that guy wall himself in? I don't know. I'm imagining this is like a very <laughs> old city with catacombs and maybe thicker walls for one reason or another that people have converted into secret passageways, especially if they're part of a secret gold-masked society. If there's passageways, that guy should have moved farther away. <laughs> very true. That was a really cool scene. That reminded me of, you know, I mentioned True Detective earlier. It reminded me of something that they would do in that show where they just kind of walk in and there's a, you know, very punctuated little action scene where we find the guy that attempted to murder Daenerys. Or no, sorry, that was yes. uh, killing uh, uh, Unsullied. Yes, I would be totally happy to have Dario and Grey Worm following my model of just buddying up and having a bunch of scenes together. They could investigate murders. It would be so great. I uh, I vote that we term, uh, instead of odd couples uh, for this show, we term them pod couples. Excellent. Done. <laughs> uh, so we have in Marine, we have that. Uh, I loved, loved, loved the riot scene where uh, we get subtitles of all the things that the crowd is yelling back at Daenerys. Yeah. And they're even throwing rocks at her, which... That's a bad sign. I feel like that's reserved for something very, very special in the show. Uh, Like, the last time that happened was when Joffrey uh, was uh, doing something in King's Landing, and there was a big riot there, too. Yep. You'd never want your rule to be compared with Joffrey's in any way. No, not at all. Uh, I really appreciate the parcel tongue that they uh, gave Daenerys with all the hissing. Yeah. Mm. So, uh... I'd like to move up to the wall now. How do you feel about that? I, I would love to. That's right. We haven't even touched the wall yet. That's. I feel like that's, that's right. a really big part of, uh, especially these past two episodes, hopefully the rest of the season. Yeah, because Jon Snow, first he's given a chance to swear loyalty to Stannis, who will then make him officially Jon Stark, Lord of Winterfell. All he has ever wanted. 
But then before he can act on that, Samwell kind of pimps him into being the uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. (laughs) I have in my notes, in all caps, Sam, don't do it. But Sam did it so well. I was so proud of him. Because... Apparently what you do when you're running for Lord Commander is you talk smack about the other guy. Mm. (laughs) So people say, oh, Sam the Slayer wants to say something. (laughs) Snigger, snigger. How's your wildling lady, Slayer? (laughs) And And Sam just took it, said, her name is Gilly, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then told everyone what a weasel Yano Slint was. Did that actually that. happen, or was that just here? Yeah. Oh, oh I, I missed that then. Yeah, Sam found them, too. When he found Gilly after the uh, wildling attack, he was he accurately described it as a storage cupboard in which Gilly, Gilly's baby, and Yeno Slint were cowering. In a puddle of their own making. Yes. <laughs> and that was the perfect thing to say, and I'm... I'm really just so proud of Sam. He's doing really well, I think. He really is. There's a scene earlier at the, ro- at the wall where we have Sam, Gilly, and uh, the grayscaled daughter of uh, yeah. of Stannis. And the way they were talking about uh, people locked out and people who are marginalized in this show, this show is so very, you know, backwards in terms of any sort of, like, social uh, advancement. And we see that a lot in very, very stark ways. Everyone's pointing out uh, the fact that Tyrion's a dwarf. Everyone's pointing out that, you know, these wildlings are, uh, you know, they're simple and feral, uh, that these they're simple. Uh, the grayscale daughter has been locked away for however long with her books. There's a really great scene uh, talking uh, of them talking about, you know, how they deal with it and how they feel about uh, these people uh, who are marginalizing them because of some very, very surface-level stuff. And it was wonderful to see Sam overcome that for a scene and have something really, really big to do. Uh, I was a, When I heard them laughing at the stuff he was saying, I knew he had made it and that Jon Snow would yeah. win, sadly. And, this, and I was especially happy for Sam because earlier in the episode, even Gilly was getting tired of him because she made a point of saying how much better Stannis' daughter was at teaching someone to read. <laughs> Well, I mean, she has the patience of uh, someone who has been locked away for however long doing all this stuff with uh, books and living inside her own head. And she finally has someone to share that with because they're both, you know, marginalized. Women get really the short end of the stick in this show, especially at the Night's Watch, which is almost entirely men. It's true. So uh, now John's going to be Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. That's something. That's something, yeah. But how is that going to – is that going to conflict with his uh, his own goals and his own beliefs? Uh, there was that scene talk, of him talking about uh, the oath he made for the Night's Watch versus what he owes the king. And, you know, in the show, everyone has their own oath or their own, uh, you know, set of morals and moral code that uh, is conflicted with almost everything else. And everyone thinks theirs is the highest because it's theirs, obviously, and they're the uh, the protagonist of their own story, even though we see all of them fairly equally. And here he is trying to come to terms with, uh, do I side with this king and get my name back, or do I stay with the Night's Watch and do all the stuff here? I gotta say, though, although we're told he's always wanted to be a Stark, everything he's done for the past three and a half seasons has led me to the conclusion that all he wants to do is fight for the Night's Watch. 
That's very true, but I feel like, you know, first of all, we rarely ever saw him except for the first few episodes of season one with the Starks. Uh, we have most of the stuff that he's done in the show has been with the Night's Watch or the Wildlings. And, you know, they're all accusing him about, you know, being way too friendly with the Wildlings and uh, having relations with the Wildlings and uh, all of that stuff. He's been conflict Like, a lot of different things are pulling him in different directions. The Night's Watch wants him because he's a great fighter and leader. Uh, Stannis wants him because he understands all of these facets and has the name Stark, or at least kind of and you know he just wants to i don't know john has all of these things pulling him in these different directions what's he gonna do i i don't really get a sense at least i don't get a sense that john snow has personal goals hmm. and i think that's might be why i'm not super invested in this particular story he he's had goals in the past. He was going to prove himself to the Night's Watch. He wanted to, you know, find Egret. He wanted to talk to Mance. In this episode, at least, it's been external forces acting on him and pushing him in one way or another. He didn't decide to become Lord Commander, but he also didn't decide... He's very passive right now in his storyline, I think. Very, very that true. That's my point. Uh, yeah, no, there's a bunch of passive people in the show. And I, I never really uh, pinned John down as passive, but you're right. This was a very external episode for him. Uh, the only thing we get of him really is, uh, oh, man, I've always wanted to be John Stark. Like, I've always wanted my name back. He tells a story of how uh, his biggest dream when he was younger was to have Ned go to the king and say, listen, give him his name back. He's earned it. And who knows whether or not he's earned it now, but he certainly at least earned the uh, vote of Night's Watch. Yeah. Of course, if he'd been keeping up on current events, being a Stark might not be the best plan. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I, I'm always excited at the prospect of having more Starks uh, in positions of power. <laughs> yeah, we need to reload. <laughs> yeah. Because Arya has checked out. Sansa is hanging out with Littlefinger. Who knows where Bronn is? Who even remembers that Rickon exists? <laughs> and everyone else is dead. Yep. Uh, quick aside about Arya. I have no idea what she's doing. I don't know if she's checked out, but who knows where she's well, going to end up. She's checked out of the main storyline. Yeah. Like, I think we're still, we'll probably still follow her events, but she has left Westeros to go follow her own uh, thing. Which I totally respect. <laughs> Um, at this point, she needs some combat training if she's going to come back and actually get anything done. That's very true. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine anybody would give her any positions of power as of yet. Like she, there's no way she's going to be, say, Lord of Winterfell in any, uh, you know, meaningful way. Cause she's young. She's a girl. Uh, she's been, you know, very rugged these past few seasons. No one's going to put her on a throne, but I'm always excited to see Starks with agency. Well, exactly. That's why I like Arya more than Sansa historically, is Sansa has had goals, but has had no power to achieve those goals, and events has just shoved her around brutally. And I think now Sansa is going to start taking more of an active hand in her own uh, destiny. God, I hope so. With, with Arya, this isn't the way the show could, this isn't the timeline the show could really go on, but I could certainly see her 
spend five years or so training up in the ways of the faceless men. <laughs> then once she's a stone-cold murderer and able to change her face, she could come back to Westeros and do whatever she wanted. That would be fantastic. I mean, you know, we talked earlier a few episodes ago about how time may not actually exist in Westeros the way we perceive it because things can happen over the course of this hour that we watch Game of Thrones. Time flows differently for different subplots. So who knows? Maybe we'll get something um, uh, in the style of uh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the guy that was tortured uh, two years ago. Uh, Theon? Thank you. Thank you. That was embarrassing. Theon. Uh, maybe we'll get something like that where he'll check out for a while and then we'll see him again and he'll be, you know, time flows differently for all of these different subplots in a way. That's possible. Of course, uh, Arya does have uh, four major goals and that is to kill Cersei, Walder Frey, <laughs> the Mountain, and Meryn Trant. As we heard many, many times while she was waiting outside <laughs> the House of Black and White. I like a character with goals. Mm, and she listed them out very, very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little on the nose to have a character come out, face the camera, and say, I wish to do these things. But uh, that's what Arya does. That's what Brienne does. It's refreshing. It's like it's uh, actually what it's like Varys is doing now. That's very true. It's um, He's coming out and saying all this stuff. You know, Game of Thrones has been known for its economy with, uh, uh, you know, p- packing a lot of information into very short amounts of time and very, like, small details carrying huge ramifications. And I feel like that's something that's necessary for a show of this, uh, of this scale. But... Uh, I feel like these I want uh, scenes or like uh, like I want songs in uh, Disney where the first song in all these Disney movies is I want this and that's how the movie uh, keeps going. I feel like that's been a little bit of a failure lately uh, just because uh, in the first season when we're introduced to all of these characters in the first three episodes or so, we get so many wonderful little moments that give that carry so much weight and give you so much little detail and it's kind of taking a backseat to the these I want scenes. Yeah, it used to be that the first episode of the season was devoted to resetting and reminding you who everyone is. Now there might be so many people, they have to do that for the first two episodes of every season. (laughs) Wasn't there talk of adding an extra episode somewhere down the line, like having an 11-episode season, or was that just something I heard somewhere? Uh, I had not heard that. It would not overly surprise me it would annoy me because it would break the symmetry yeah i I love the symmetry i didn't think i would love the symmetry as much as i do but (laughs) i like knowing like oh this is episode 42 which means this is uh 42 hours in exactly season four episode two yeah well uh i think we've covered the episode in pretty good detail yeah yeah we went out of order but i feel like we got everything i've presented my theory that the show is uh breaking into pairs of comically mismatched people that can share uh banter and maybe they're going to do that to obscure the fact that Tyrion and Varys should have gotten where they're going i really hope they do that would be neat yeah all right. Uh, do you have any final words on Game of Thrones, the House of Black and White? Uh, Valar Morghulis, Monty. Uh, Valar Harris, Brian. <laughs> All right. This is Monty Ashley and Brian Hamilton. I have also forgotten how we end these. Uh, see you next week. Good night. <laughs>